the, the NFL stands for not for long. Second down and goal from just inside the two. Backs offset. Sharga and Armstead. Rollout. Walker. Still running out. Looks to the left. Wide open. Thompson touchdown. Colin Thompson with the touchdown. There was nobody within 20 yards. What of a catch off the bobble. Colin Thompson scoops it up. Locking quarter of the end zone. It is caught for the touchdown. The first NFL touch for Colin Thompson is a score. What is up, everybody? This is your host, Not From All Media, Colin Thompson. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I hope everyone is having a great day. We appreciate your support of Not For Long Media. Shout out to Ange and George. They got hitched this weekend. Love you guys. So happy for you guys. Hope you guys enjoy your honeymoon. Thank you for always listening to Not For Long Media, media excuse me, and supporting us. Again, congrats and enjoy. So lots going on in Not For Long Media this week. We have episode 22 to 42, the best of in there. I've told people before, these are like my babies, these episodes. So it was really hard to sift through everything and find the best of. I'll take 20 minutes from every episode that we do. And all of a sudden, the thing is 10 hours long, and we just can't do that physically. My computer would crash. So uh, we are just doing a sample from 10 plus people uh, from five to 10 minutes of every episode. So people can catch up on episodes. People can find out new things that they haven't listened before. And again, we really appreciate everyone's support of not for long. So lots of fun things going on. If you follow us on social media, guys, you saw the great Rob Aldave rocking the Nike, not for long media, purple dry fit, awesome holiday gift to give to your dad, your friends, your husbands, your family, whatever it may be a great Nike dry fit polo. Also, the hat I'm wearing right now, the not for long media cap. It's a dry fit material. It's a athletic material. It is not a thick cotton material hat. So it's kind of, it's nice. It's fresh. It's light. It's easy to pack. You can pack it. It's not going to get folded up or anything. So I love the hat. And then we have long sleeve t-shirts, Columbia SPF 50 sun shirts that I wear all the time. They're comfortable. They fit great. Um, wearing for all occasions and, and that's another great shirt and then we have columbia jackets so really good material stuff that we have on our website check it out notforlongmedia.com holidays are approaching awesome apparel to get for you and your loved ones so again the best of episode is coming up this week we try to fit everything from episode 22 to 42 we're doing two to one and a half episodes per week right now so there's a lot of material to sift through but here's what to expect today what you're going to listen to today listening to this podcast in this order here's where you're going to get ozzy martinez former marine he's the first one he's kicking us off ozzy thank you for your service an unbelievable episode just a small sample size with ozzy go back and listen to ozzy ozzy's episode is tremendous jj jansen uh, former pro bowler, all pro, uh, long snapper, currently for the Carolina Panthers. A great listen. Dan Arnold, formerly with us with Carolina, got traded to Jacksonville. Dan came on. We did an hour in person. He was officially our first in-person interview and not for long media. We did that right at the end of training camp. He talked a little bit about Drew Brees. We featured that today on this podcast. Ian Thomas, another Carolina Panther on the podcast. We did him right after practice, our last training camp practice against the Ravens. A joint practice where he's from Baltimore. So there's a lot of really cool stuff there. Rear Admiral, one of our top listened podcasts ever. He's the host of Spit and Chicklets of Barstool Sports, uh, one of the, if not the number one hockey podcast in the world. Now, Fortner, the head coach of Georgia Tech women's basketball, 
Nell's got an amazing story talking about coaching Olympic teams and her success as a dual sport athlete in college. Kevin Clark of The Ringer, a fantastic interview. We talked a little bit about the mega, uh, the, the mega cast with the Manning brothers. That's what was featured today on this episode. Uh, Darren Heitner, he is a lawyer in South Florida. He talks a lot about name, image, and likeness and just unionization of college athletics, and that's possible. I featured that on this episode. Chris Long, Eagle, Patriot, Super Bowl champion, top pick, one of the top picks for the Rams back in the day when they were in St. Louis, an unbelievable podcast as well. Check out his material. Adam Schefter, we all know him, ESPN insider, a great, insi a great insider, one of the best in the business. And then Brian Dickinson, to wrap things up, Brian climbed Mount Everest and then climbed back down blind. Unbelievable interview with Brian again. So we feature just a little bit of every interview, five, 10 minutes, some are three minutes, just a little bit of a taste for you guys. So you can catch up and maybe go back and dive into something that you may have missed. So again, we appreciate everyone's support, not for long media. Thank you to our team and not for long media. Thank you to our followers, our fans. We appreciate you check out our website, tons of great apparel, tons of great interactive things. You can learn more about our team and not for long media. So thank you again. We appreciate your support. And here is the best of episode from episode 22 to episode 42. Thanks. Talk about what you've done in radio and podcasting and how that's helped you. Uh, that goes to that whole thing of me and trying to find that adrenaline hit. Uh, people are like, Ozzy, what haven't you done? And I'm like, man, I mean, I haven't played in professional sports yet, yet, because I mean, I'm still trying to get good at golf, because I think that's the only one I might have a chance to still. But <laughs> um, let me see, I was, I was in the Marine Corps at the age, uh, turned 21 in boot camp, and you know, I signed up after September 11th. And I was in the Marine Corps, got out, struggled for a while, and eventually found myself. Uh, I found what I ended up finding was that I wasn't alone. That's what I mean. I found myself. I, I really was struggling. I was suicidal for a while. My, my wife had, had split up with me for about two and a half years. I went to a reunion uh, in 2014, marking the 10-year anniversary of Fallujah. And uh, in that reunion, I asked. I mean, second day we were all hanging out. I was there for a week, and I was like, we were all, everybody's drinking. I'm trying not to because at the time, I was struggling a lot with alcohol. And... I just asked around the, the campfire. I was like, hey, does anybody here ever want to just kill themselves or end it all? And it got quiet. Like I, when, I, when, I, when I publicly speak and I share the story, I tell people that you could hear a cricket fart. Like, that's how quiet it was. You were like, what? It was like, and I asked it again. And I'll never forget PJ uh, O'Malley in the corner is like, hey, Martinez, uh, I know very well what my barrel tastes like. I know intimately what my barrel tastes like. And I was like, oh, I'm not alone, dude. I'm like, yes, because the problem is, and this is why I think people are trying to find and, and listen to podcasts because social media has tricked everybody, you know, it's, and that was the problem with me. I would look on fake book, Facebook, whatever. And, and I'm like, man, all these guys I served with that saw the same stuff I did. And I was about to curse. I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. Go ahead, so man. I'm Let like, it rip. I'm like, you know, I'm like, all these guys that did the same shit I did. I'm like. All of them are just perfectly fine. Look at the posting their, their life, how great it is. And I'm over here wanting, wanting to suck the end of a barrel, you know? And I'm like, this, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, how is, am I flawed? You know, so when I asked that in that reunion, I, I, I felt that sense of relief. And I came back home 
And I started Operation WebVet. From Operation WebVet, in the back of the fishing boat was my goal was that I could get guys for eight to 10 hours in the back of a fishing boat and they can't go anywhere and they have no choice but to listen to me. Um, I, I have had the gift of gab when I'm comfortable, uh, when I control the, the environment, the narrative, like you said, and Operation Web, I gave that to me. Um, COVID came around and before, be, before even COVID came around, I already had bought all the gear. I mean, dude, I have the Sure SMB7, I have a few of them. I, I have the, the road you know, roadcaster, I have everything set up for podcasting. I was just hesitant on pulling the trigger, hesitant on pulling the trigger. I had been struggling for a couple years um, on pulling the trigger on a lot of things. And um, it, 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 it's, it's called standing on the X. It's called being on the X. And uh, I introduced you to a, a brother of mine, my mentor, Jason Redmond, and he kind of developed what's called the overcome mindset, right? And I ended up getting invited by a fellow veteran that I took out through Operation Web. And he's like, hey, man, Ozzy, dude, I feel like you could do so much more with who you are, but something you're, you're like standing on the X. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, bro. I'm like, is there a treasure or something? You know, and he's like, yeah, you know, kind of you're the treasure, but that's not what it means. You know, he's like, you know, standing on the X, talk to Jason Redmond so you understand. So I, I spoke to him and he's like, listen, man, you know, in combat, when we get ambushed, um, that's, that, that's that air, that place you're standing on. I'm like, yeah, okay. The X he's like, correct. He's like, you've been on so many life ambushes that you're just on the X of personal, personal X. And I went to the overcome Academy. I learned a lot in these two weeks that, uh, this program that Jay Redmond had started for, for combat wounded veterans. I went there and I came back from there, like, whew. He's, he's like, man, he's always says that he's like, Ozzy, I lit a fire under your ass. I was like, dude, you lit me on, you lit me on fire. Actually. I was like, because this is, it was, it wasn't life-changing. I, I, I got interviewed by a newspaper the day I graduated. They're like, Hey, was this life-changing? I'm like, no, it wasn't like, it was mind changing because at the end of the day, you got to change your life, right? You're, you're in control of it. So I left there totally, totally different in 2018. Um, and I started uh, college a, a month or two months later and then within that process uh that was january 2019 covid you know started hitting towards the end what was it 2019 I'm, I'm, it's such a blur for me I, I don't even remember anymore i know 2020 wasn't like an eraser year an asterisk year <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think it was let's see here i Man, think I'm, it was I'm, like I'm, at the end of january of 2020 is yes january everything february, february yeah. I, I was sitting in tampa florida really like lakeland area okay we were staying in the hotel there right near our facility and i'm sitting in bed and i'm watching the utah jazz game getting ready to turn the light off and turn the tv off and get in to go to work tomorrow and their players are leaving the court before tip-off like that's right there's no way we're working through this everyone's like oh we'll be fine we're gonna grind through it i'm like guys like <laughs> we're healthy right let's pack our bags Let's get the hell out of Dodge. Like, let's go home to our families. Let's find safety. This is obviously a serious thing. Um, Rudy Gobert licked the mic. He had COVID the whole nine, you know, that, that whole story. So that's my first, that's, that's when it hit me. Like, okay. Whoa. So yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Cause I spent a whole year in, in college that whole year. Once again, now that I had just left the overcome Academy, the juices were flowing and I'm like, all right, the podcast is 100% happening. I just don't know what I want to do. I had a buddy of mine that same same uh, brother of mine, Sean Lopez, uh, he has his, his own podcast now. He, he wanted to 
do a podcast together, but his was just kind of like just shooting the shit. And I just didn't want that. I, I, I wanted to, there's people are so, there's such a stigma around everything with PTSD and stuff like that. And I really just wanted to break that stigma. I was tired of it. I meet people all the time. Cause when I walk out in public and stuff, I have a service dog that goes with me everywhere. It's my second dog I have now. Um, uh, and, and we go everywhere together. So people obviously now approach me and talk to me about it. Right. Where it would, it makes kind of like no sense. Right. Where someone with PTSD doesn't like to be bothered and doesn't, doesn't like all that. Right. But then again, if without my dog, I very feel insecure when I'm out in public and it's not that I can't protect myself. I, 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 I'm legally allowed to conceal carry and, and you know, I'm not, not never been deemed crazy or anything like that. Uh, that's part of the stigma. People think that people with PTSD, more specifically veterans with PTSD, can have a gun, right? Uh, I think it's more the fear that we're fully trained to use that weapon to its maximum capacity that scares people. But in conversation, I explained to people, I'm like, would you stop a, a young lady that was raped by seven individuals to carry a firearm to protect herself because she has PTSD? And they're like, no, it's her right. And I'm like, right. So it's my right to defend myself. You're just scared that I was fully trained and I've been to war and, you know, I'm probably not going to spend a whole magazine. I'm just going to spend one or two bullets. Like, I, like, I literally tell people very bluntly, like, you're scared of that. Let's be real. I go, but if the reality is, and then I, then I break it down to them. I'm like, I don't need a weapon to kill anybody. I could hurt you with this pen, with this pencil. I'm like, we're trained to go straight through your eyeball into the brain and disable the situation. Right. They're like, oh. I'm like, right, so you're going to ban pencils from me and stuff. So it starts the conversation, though, right? So now what the dog has created is it gives me that sense of security, and he does. For me, it's more a control situation. I don't like being in an area where my back's – if I go to a restaurant, I can't. I just – I can't. And I'm not a mobster or anything. I just – I want to see everything coming at me because of society, just the way things have happened in life. It's just real, okay? And I have the best chance of either stopping something – or getting my family out of there, right? I feel whenever I walk into a place, I have the best chance of stopping it. So I want to have my back, my eyes towards it. So that's the way I live. And the dog has lightened that sense of security for me because we'll go somewhere and he sits down facing behind me. And I know that when people walk in, they see a, before he used to be a Belgian Malinois, now it's a German Shepherd. They see this dog, they're like, whoa. Because most of the time they think I'm a canine officer and I'm not. So that already just kind, kind of like, eases the scenario wherever I'm at and gives me calmness. Now I'm able to open up to people and stuff like that. But within this, uh, you know, overcome academy, graduate, COVID hits, uh, a year while I'm in school, that's when I decide finally it's time to start the podcast. And I started post-traumatic survival. Uh, it's the podcast that helps you rewire your brain to survive and thrive after trauma. I, I asked permission uh, from Jay Redmond to be able to, to talk about the Overcome uh, Army, which is a program that uh, we have for civilians now. Uh, Jay started this program I, I, about a year before COVID, uh, the same time I started school. And it's a program for civilians as a group, all right? It's a, a, a group coaching group, sorry, uh, group coaching. And we have uh, six coaches uh, that, that coach there, uh, myself, Jay, Sean, Sierra, which is uh, Jay's daughter. She's a nutrition coach. And then we have Jay and his wife that come out on Sundays and stuff. And then we have Kenny, a firefighter uh, from Virginia. 
So we're kind of hitting a few, you know, civilian, firefighter, veterans, you know, and what we end up doing is we, we preach what's called the overcome mindset. Like I said, the, the basis behind it is you get ambushed in life. All right. Life throws you ambushes. And that is now you standing on the X. I tell people that life sucks a lot more than combat does. Combat is easy. And football players will say it sometimes that on the field, it's so much easier because you just got one thing to do. Hit the guy with the ball or score. That's it. That's it. Uh, let's talk about your weekly process because it's unique. It's different than everyone else's. It's different than every position. It's probably different than every long snappers. Um, it's not like you have a long snapper in the building you can learn from. Yeah. For me, I've had some great tight ends over the years where I've been able to follow what they do, how they do it. I've taken a little bit from every single one. There's always a positive in any great player, whether you think they have a good process or not. I think that's what made my process what it is today is everyone I follow. There's no one for really you to follow. If this is what I do, this is how I get ready to play. Take us, you know, through your Monday to Sunday preparation. So I, I almost look at the week Wednesday to Tuesday. Um, re really kind of starting, starting on Wednesday, walking in the building, um, getting my body ready to play, really trying to, uh, you know, a lot of guys watch a lot of tape so that they can learn what the other team's going to do. And one of, one of the things I learned pretty early, about the middle of my career was the more tape I watched, um, I began to start chasing ghosts. I'd start, start figuring out what they're going to do. And so much of what I do on the field is reactionary. So I have my keys, you know, I'm looking for tells that the other team has. And I, and I've got those, I'm aware of those and I'm looking for that, but it, you know, you start, you, you know, you start saying, you know, there's some guys that watch a ton of tape and I did for a long time. And what I ended up finding was I started guessing when I really just need to be reacting. So my position is very reactionary, especially blocking, um, blocking on punt. So um, I learned I need I need to watch some tape early in the week, late Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe even a little bit Thursday, and then the rest of it's just physically preparing my body to play. So so snapping, um, you know, anything I want to do in terms of changing the location, laces, all of that stuff try to get that done early in the week so that by Friday, Saturday, Sunday, my mind's just kind of freed up just to react, uh, get my body right. One of the biggest things that I learned probably about year six or seven was I wanted to have my central nervous system really sharp on game day. So I try to push all my lifting, all my stuff as early in the week as possible because I figured out doing a couple versions of testing that the later in the week I lifted, the less fine motor skills. And I want to be able to feel the ball like coming off of my index finger at the point of release. And if I lifted a lot late in the week or something like that, I just, I was a little bit more wired going into a game and I couldn't feel everything the way a pitcher might want to feel the ball come off, come off the seam. So I really kind of front load the week, play the game. You know, the, my biggest thing is, you know, we're not on for three and a half, three hours. We're on for four and a half. We're warming up at 1130. And the biggest kick of the game is at 4.15. And so one of the biggest things I've learned is how do I get warmed up with as little effort as possible, kind of like a relief pitcher. And then during the game, kind of putting together a system that I don't have to constantly be on. It's just sort of these short little bursts where I could be sharp and then go back and rest. Because I want to be able to hold that for as long as I need to go. And then once the game ends, kind of spend Monday and Tuesday 
recalibrating, recovering, massage, lifting, moving my body again. And then I don't really start on the next week till Wednesday. Some guys start on the next week, Monday. I, I kind of always looked at it kind of a Wednesday to Tuesday where the game is at the end of the week, that there's still a lot of recovery and stuff that I kind of put back to last week. So that's kind of the brief overview and stuff that I've learned along the way. I haven't been able to learn from other long snappers, but I've learned a lot from the kickers, punters, quarterbacks, kind of all the other guys doing fine motor skills. What is it that they think about? Um, and then just try to adapt to the snapping. there obviously drew Brees is somebody that you were yeah. able to work with what was drew like him i think the, the the most fun i had watching drew was definitely my rookie year on ir because i got to just sit at practice and sit behind the huddle like where everybody's you know we're in practice and everybody's kind of lined up behind just as the offense is going just sitting back there watching him work a defense watching him go in and out of the huddle watch him you know check to certain protections you know miking everything right like, it was just unreal to see. He'd have some protections where he's, like, miking a safety that's, like, 18 yards deep, like, way pre-snap. And you're like, what? Like, why is he doing that? And then all of a sudden that safety starts creeping up, and then he comes, and you're like, I don't know what told him, you know? It's just wild, like, watching him. And then in the games, too, like, pregame, dude, he'd be he'd have the script in front of his face, like, going through, like, each and every play and, like, like, Going through his progressions, like in like just sitting in his locker, like knowing what he's gonna do. Like, his visualization is, is unreal. Insane. Yes. I heard a lot of stuff he used to do too. Was like he, he would do it. He would like kind of as Justin fumbles really bad ball security. Um, <laughs> so uh, you, he would do like a kind of a walkthrough for himself after Friday or, th or Saturday yeah. practice. We'll yeah. talk about that. You saw that. Yeah. Sure. So, Sunday, so Saturdays um, we'd have a regular walkthrough, and then we. Go into a team meeting, you know, just kind of get all the notes. Like, this is when we're meeting at the hotel, whatever. And then after that meeting would break up, Drew would go into the in the indoor, and he would go through the entire script, like in his head, and like go through all the plays, kind of walk through some stuff, go through his progressions, like on the field with nobody out there. And it was just wild to see that. Yeah. But it was crazy during practice too, because he would he would hit his first read, and then. Like, most guys, like, they'd hit their first read, and they'd be like, okay, good. He, like, he caught it and just kind of whatever. Drew would throw his first read, know that the receiver it was going to be on the money perfectly right where it was supposed to be, go to his second read, look at that guy, go to his third read, look at that guy, and, like, pretend to throw it. Like, he just worked through everything. And you're like, wow, that's a whole other level of, of football. Did he ever do it in a game, like accidentally? Sometimes I feel like I caught him doing it. Like he'd, we'd have like a drive concept. He'd throw the shallow and then come back for the basic and like look at it. And you're like, dude, you threw the ball. <laughs> the ball's like, there. Get... Yeah, Alvin Kamara's taking off for like 40 yards yeah. on the sideline. He's looking at the basic coming across. <laughs> Before Jay gets into his next question here, uh, just explaining some of the things that Dan was talking about. He talked about mic points. A lot of times in protection, you see the quarterback out here pointing, making him the mic, which is making him the quote unquote middle linebacker. And what that does, it sets protections for the O-line so then they can make their call saying, okay, that's the mic. The protection's coming from there. We can slide the O-line that way. We can make the tight ends go this way. We can make the back go that way. We know the Peyton Manning stuff. You've seen Tom mm -hmm. Brady do it. You've seen every quarterback in the NFL do it now. They all do. But that's what Dan was explaining when it comes to the mic point in Drew Brees. I mean, Drew's like one of the most uh, like accurate quarterbacks of all time. Did, like, how easier, like how much easier did that make your job 
when you're out there running routes, knowing that he could fit it in whatever yeah. window he wants. Yeah. His biggest thing, like he always coached us, was like he just wanted the indicator steps, which is like when you're running your route and then you go on your break. He wanted that step that he could see visually and then know your angle so that he could put it on the money. But you just trust him. Like those deep ends, like the way he would just kind of – like Drew wouldn't like rifle balls in. Like he wasn't a big like gunslinger, but the timing of his routes and like him being able to drop a ball right where he wanted to, knowing that the receiver was going to be there, was uncanny. But yeah, no, I it definitely makes your job so much easier when you do have a really good quarterback because he's no matter where it is, he's going to find find you open, get you a ball. Um, like especially in seam routes as a tight end. You're just expecting that ball to be placed perfectly. Just look up for it. He's throwing it right behind, you know, a defender's helmet for like a back shoulder, and you just know what's on the money. It, it, yeah, makes it so so much easier. So, uh, not to jump ahead, but uh, I mean, you've played with Drew Brees, you played with Kyler Murray in Arizona, and I'm sure we'll talk about your time in Arizona more in a second. But undersized quarterbacks. Is that just like overblown? Does that not matter in the NFL? Drew's like six foot ish. Kyler's five ten. Like, does that matter? Like having a, a quarterback that can see over the line, or you know, like what has your been experience like playing with those guys? Um, yeah, I think just playing with Drew from the get go is like you kind of just got used to it. That you're not necessarily looking for the quarterback throwing the ball. Like Drew's thing was he would look between like guards and tackles and like throw it in windows. And then, so you like, you wouldn't see Drew and all of a sudden you just see him and that ball's appearing in your face. Um, it t- I feel like it might've taken some use to, but like, like you said, he's the most accurate quarterback and like that ball's going to be out of money in your chest. So you kind of have no choice but to catch the ball. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think if a guy can throw and he's got a good arm on him, I don't, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If he can find an open receiver, read a defense like any other person, the stature of a quarterback is not height, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I play with smaller quarterbacks as well. P.J. Walker, for example. Um, I mean, P.J. makes all the throws. Dancy's in practice. We all do. You know, but the, there's definitely a difference in the quarterback, a difference in the, the way the ball comes out, difference yeah. in the anticipation. Uh, maybe P.J.'s got to do a little bit more work. Drew Brees has to do a little bit more work to get the ball there. But these guys are unreal. Like, uh, the, the quarterback position is just ridiculous. can't help but thinking i see these three boxes on the screen uh i can't help thinking that we kind of have our own little manning mega cast going on right now yeah wow yeah so who are you justin if you're going to call the manning mega cast oh i would be the sheriff without a doubt oh i I put the tiny helmet on i'll call the plays uh and i i I don't know comic relief colin maybe could be eli and make fun of my big forehead is kevin like russell wilson like yeah my russell my third man in here my russell (laughs) pretty good third man in that's a very rich third man by the way absolutely yeah, if but I'm on that kind of if I'm on that kind of contract, I'm I'm happy to be any role. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so Monday Night Football, the Manny Mega Cast was the story of the night. What did you think about it? And if you were creating your own Manny Mega Cast, what kind of like athlete mix would you put in there? Yeah. So I loved it. First of all, big picture, I loved it, and I think that's what sports needs. I I think that what's funny is I'm sure you guys have seen the college coaches film room when it's Alabama Clemson or literally was just writing I literally was just writing that down because that to me is the best 
and you get right. to see some younger coaches in college football. You get to see mm-hmm. different things. Like that's my favorite way to mm-hmm. watch the game. But not for everyone sure. enjoys and, that. Well, not not only does not everybody enjoy it, it's for us, you know. I mean, and that that's that's the thing I was talking. I was talking to our media columnist last night. Like, okay, all three of us loved it last night because not only is it Kyle Bowler anecdotes, but it's Peyton saying Derek Carr is not setting his feet, all that stuff, right? I, are, do my parents want to watch this stuff? I actually don't know the answer. Like, my parents have no idea what's going on. Like, they know who Peyton and Eli are, obviously, and Russell is, obviously. But I don't think that they're sitting there being like, oh, I, I got to hear this Kyle Bowler anecdote. And that's, gonna, that's why I'm intrigued to see the ratings over the long term is what happens that is there still a need for the traditional booth and stuff like that for, for more uh, casual viewers? There's a reason why, like, 60 million people watch the AFC title game or the NFC title game when it's a big game. And it's because of the casual viewers, not us, um, not a literal NFL player in, in one case. So I loved it. But I would also say one of the things, the reason it works is because it's hard for me to watch the, the college coaches film room during a game that I really care about. So like the national championship, I kind of just want to know who's going to win the game, what's happening, who's making the play. Cause obviously I don't really know the too deep of all of these guys unless it's the team I've, I've watched heavily. And so I think that for Monday Night Football, where the games are not as like neither of us are, none of us are gonna are gonna our lives are not gonna change based off of the, the Raiders Ravens outcome, right? Um, so actually, that works in that regard. But if it's a Super Bowl or if it's a playoff game, maybe like a two minute anecdote doesn't doesn't really pay off, you know? So I loved it. I'm worried now that everyone every network is just gonna try this, and it's just gonna be like every single any any athlete who's ever told a joke is gonna get their own. Uh, broadcast uh so i think networks have to guard against that but great question Justin. about how i would build that so if it's football you know i think that there's probably some room i'd love like maybe like a larry if you're looking for only retired athletes right now if i was if i had to like sign people right now maybe like a larry fitzgerald kind of thing like maybe he could, he could do something like that he has so many connections in the league you bring people in he's funny he's free-flowing I, i've had him on our show on Tuesday before I, I really like him um but I would look to other sports more like the one thing that makes so much sense. If we're talking about slow pace and just kind of, you're able to tell a 10, 10 minute story that goes nowhere. Look at golf, like maybe like a Phil Mickelson in five years, like who's not watching the U S open Phil cast where he's just sitting in, in San Diego or Arizona or whatever. And he's got a beer and he's, he's just telling stories about these guys and how much money he won gambling from them. Um, so people talk to, I guess baseball has been doing this a couple of times, no shots to baseball, but it's funny that no one's noticed baseball has been doing this for the past five years. Um, and so I think the possibilities are endless. NBA hockey might be harder because of how fast paced it all is. There's not, not a lot of dead time, but this is, I think this is the future in the sense that, Peyton and Eli together chopping it up is the future. I don't necessarily, I think this was, I think you have to have a Peyton or Eli for this to work, um, but this is going to work in the long term. And it looks like they, they want to do it. The fact they're not in the same room is fine because they have chemistry um, and they're brothers. They've been, they've been doing this for, for 40 years now. They're good on the chemistry part of it. Um, so I, I just, I adored the whole thing. All right, we are here at day two Carolina Panthers training camp. My name is Justin Ayers for Not For Long Media, and I'm joined by the tight end of the Carolina Panthers, Mr. Ian Thomas. Yes, sir. Ian, how we doing, buddy? Tired, but we here. We're here. We're alive, yeah. <laughs> how, was, uh, how was day two for you? Are you ready to get out of here? Oh, yeah, it was great. Um, the competition was hot today. Um, the heat was hot, too, so um, I felt like it was great competition on both sides of the ball. 
um, had to push through through practice. But I mean, that's what training camp's about. And um, I felt like that last day is what really showed some guys what training camp is if they haven't like really felt the heat in Spartanburg or felt like the intensity of going against another team because you go, you always go against your defense every day and it kind of gets you know like the repetitive the same thing and um, so we had a chance to get out there against the Ravens for the second day and uh, had some different plays had some different looks on that defense so we had a chance to think a little bit in the heat so yeah, South Carolina Heat down here. So I was actually, this is the mo interview I was most excited about because yeah. we are both Maryland guys. Oh, yeah. I'm from the Eastern Shore. You're from Baltimore. Yep. Uh, so growing up in Baltimore, like what did football mean to you? Uh, Well, I didn't play Pop Warner. I played like um, a $5 Little League that was in the neighborhood. <laughs> so it wasn't like much. But other than that, like we just played football on the street. And it, w it really wasn't like, um, I guess, like a, a big goal of mine. I mean, it, it was like, oh, I want to make it to the NFL. But it wasn't like me striving to do it if that makes sense but um yeah it was I always had love for the game love the Ravens growing up and um just playing football catch with my brothers outside and that was that was really much pretty much it how did growing up in Baltimore because I've heard a lot about your story growing up mm -hmm. how did growing up in Baltimore kind of shape your outlook on life oh everything um work for everything you get you know what I mean and um don't take anything for granted family is pretty much number one to you um I know some some people like their family aren't like as close as others but family is what loves you and um, that's how I feel about it so yeah yeah that's awesome so when you're growing up and you're coming up through football who are some of the people that were most instrumental in your life uh all of my brothers my sisters my close family uncles stuff like that and I had a mentor growing up Miss Judy she passed away a few years ago but um she is like who guided me through sports and helped me out with things like school and tutoring and stuff like that so um coaches of course and um who stuck by my side even even now and um um just a big thank you to them because they they're the ones who stick by my side when when times are low so all right a couple more uh so this year in camp what is different for you are you working on something different like are you trying to take your game to the next level like talking about this year yeah i always want to take it to the next level just being all around tight end catching the ball run blocking pass blocking um everything really just doing everything right want to be an all down tight end um and uh yeah that's pretty much it and um being a team guy and uh of course like coach always hops on knowing situations and that's that's really important when it comes down to it when you're tired and last seconds of the game and uh just got to push and no situations in your head and be more cognitive of everything on the field i love that all right let's do a couple quick rapid fire yep. questions i know it's hot as crap out here <laughs> uh when you're growing up who are some of your favorite baltimore ravens ray lewis terrell suggs uh ed reed tory tory smith was one and uh, i actually played with him a few years ago so oh my gosh yeah <laughs> so you went to the university of indiana uh, how awesome was it, those Maryland-Indiana rivalries? And do you talk to DJ more about some of those games you guys had back in the day? Yeah, me and uh, me, DJ and um, and JC always go back and forth about it because uh, when we played them, I had a banged-up shoulder. But, I mean, it's always good love when you're on the same team and you make it to the NFL. So we always talk about um, when they came to us and when we went to them. So, um, And I know DJ is from Philly. So, I mean, it's, it's still kind of that little rivalry. So, yeah. 2017, the Max Bortenschlager game. Do you remember that at College Park? No, I don't. Okay. Well, they, they, they ended up beating you, which is the only time I can ever remember that Indiana lost to Maryland. So I think, yeah, I, I think I do. I'm, I'm not really sure, though, because my shoulder was banged up, my knee was, and I, I was just out of it that game. So uh, so playing against the Baltimore Ravens now, I'm sure you've probably played them a couple times by now. How awesome is that? Like, you know, what's your experience like, you know, playing against your childhood team? It feels pretty good. And um, family and friends back home think it's awesome because it's always, oh, who do I root for? And we root for Ian. But, um, yeah. It feels good because um, that's the team that I grew up watching, you know what I mean? That's the team I seen go to the Super Bowl when they had the parade downtown. And um, 
it feels good to be, you know what I mean, like on the same field with those guys. And, I, and it still feel like that I'm a kid when I'm like on the field. I'm like, wow, like, you know what I mean, like right here, so. All right, last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, take ownership. Um, I learned that from a coach uh, a few years ago. And um, it's, it's not much, but um, it's, a, it's a wide variety because you can take ownership in everything you do, like everyday life, even on the field, off the field. And um, even like for Christmas one time, he gave us like a, this picture, it had like one of the sleds on it, one of the hardest sleds I ever hit in my life. I always got yelled at for like hitting it wrong. The Crowther, the Ray Crowther sled. And it was a picture of the sled because everybody always messed it up when they hit it. And at the bottom it said, take ownership. And for him, to us, that meant like, even if you gotta go before practice or after practice, you should hit that sled to get it right when it comes to um, individual drills. And um, every day to always talk about take ownership and being in the best shape of your life and taking ownership of your career so you know you put in as much as you could to get where you can, and um, it shouldn't be no regrets. So I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, sir. Of course. You're the man. Ball out this season. Yes, sir. Have a great thank rest you of the so year. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. What's the most unique thing, I guess, you could say? Like, did you plan on it being that much of a connection with the fans? Or are you just like, hey, we have a podcast. And now, all of a sudden, you're, like, all over the place doing, you know, hockey fest. And you're going to Winter Classics. And, you know, you got, you're doing signings. And you're doing all these things. And they're sold out. Like, the connectability with Barstool offers is unbelievable. I mean, it's easy for me because I am one. Like, I mean, I started off as a bottle back before it was the cesspool it is now. I was a bottle commenter back when it was the early Boston only days when the blog first started. And basically it was a proxy for a joke proxy for my friends who like only 20 guys at the time knew me as rare admiral was a college nickname. So like my Boston buddies who read the site, they knew it was me making those jokes. So it was, that's how it started. So, I mean, I went from a commenter to a blogger to, to, you know, to chicklets to, to where I am now. And so I'm always, this is you know equal to, to the folks who come in and listen and you know i would never you know never say no a big time anybody it's just like uh, it's just automatic for me to i mean i'm a personable guy anyways generally speaking but it's just automatic for me to like to, to talk to anybody who wants to talk or say hello and you know when we do these events like you mentioned hockey fest like you know we're not hiding off in some vip tent like you know we're hanging out i mean with busy eight, you know eight hours a day anybody wants to come over say hello shoot the shit talk whatever take a picture like you know, I think we'll, we'll, we'll always have that approachability. I think that's kind of what separates, you know, Boston from a lot of other places. Because I, I followed Dave, funny enough, back in May. I followed him from, uh, I think it was the West Village up to Boston headquarters. You know, it was a pretty half-hour walk or whatever. And the amount of people in his wake who just were, like, kind of fawning and, you know, the cameras coming out. And, you know, and, and, I, and I said, Dave, I'm su surprised. Like, not no disrespect to him, just it was nonstop. And he says, well, you know, he, but he stopped for everyone talk to everybody and I, I, he said i think that's the difference like you know new york usually is known for not going up to celebrities that's they're like oh we don't give a shit but they would they gave a shit with dave and and he says well the people know they can come up to us and say hello and we're not going to cold show them but they're not afraid to come up and say hello and you know i, I think that's that's something that you know like i said differentiates a little bit that would just we're just approachable joes and, and jills yeah and Jill, uh, yeah well said <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is a, such a unique company and it, it's you know everybody has their favorite part of it right everyone can tell their story about what they like the best everyone talks about us th this that what podcast you know what blog or whatever and you guys are taking off and we're going to get on to that but i want to get back into you you talk about college let's go back to uh young brian growing up in uh boston you know where you're from and and your kind of story of how you got to uh you know into college and where you're at now uh, let's see. I grew up as we talk about on the show frequently, the Charlestown Mass, the, the 
the movie The Town, if you're familiar with it, the bank robbery capital of the world, basically. That's that's you, the neighborhood I, I'm from. I grew up in. Um, very un- unique place to grow up. Uh, it's funny, like the, the whole hockey player front out type plot line. That's pretty, you know, pretty apropos because there were so many guys who were talented with skill to go pro, no doubt about it. And, you know, got waylaid or sidelined by, you know, activities and substances and all that. And the seventies in Boston was a crazy, crazy time to grow up guys, you know, older than me at the time, though, just, it was just that you kind of had like a racial civil war going on and people couldn't go to school and it was, it was crazy. So there was so much wasted potential and, and talent from that era that just never got to where they could have. Um, and going speaking of the college, like I actually went to Northeastern first, um, place in Boston, pretty well-known school, you know, but I grew up watching Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds. And I was not that I wanted to be in a fraternity, but, you know, you grew up watching all these college movies and I was taking the tea to, to uh, you know, Huntington Ave and sitting with the commuters. And like, I went to one party in like the first six months, like this isn't college to me. Like it's a great school, but I, I, I wasn't having fun. It wasn't, I wasn't having the college experience I anticipated. So I, I quit Northeastern. I was a pre-law major. I was in the College of Criminal Justice. Like I was like, oh, I thought I was going to be Annie Beckham from LA Law back when I was 18 years old. Uh, and then I, I kind of got disillusioned with the whole idea of just being a lawyer. And then I, I quit school for uh, about a year and a half. And then I, I had a, kind of a crossroads. It was like, all right, you know, you get to eight, you know late teens, early 20s in Charleston. You know, you got to kind of do something with your life. You got to figure out unless you're just going to be, a, you know, fuck around for the rest of your life, which some guys do choose that route. And I was either going to go to college or the military. And I had gone to an Air Force recruiter. Uh, me and one of my buddies were going to go in together. He ended up, he did end up going. But I went in and I signed it. I took the first initial test that, you know, basically read out the real Dumbos. Uh, and then the next time I went in, I was going to sign my life away to Uncle Sam for four. Uh, and, and then unless I got a good college financial aid package, well, lo and behold, North Adams State, which is <laughs> was like number seven on the Playboy top 10 party schools back in the day. It was like, you know, this was before binge drinking was even a, a phrase before even people even said that, you know, it was still a, a very much a potty era in college campuses. Well, I ended up getting in there uh, and that financial aid package was 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 good. I basically was going to be able to go to school. Uh, so I, I didn't go to the military, which and the reason I was going to do that was because to to get on the Boston Fire Department, my father was a fireman for 30 years here. Uh, and that's, you know, every little kid wants to do what his dad did, but because the way they did the hire and you had a, basically as a white, not the, it's not a complaining thing, but as a white male, if you didn't have veteran status, you basically weren't going to get hired. So when you got the veteran status that allowed you to get higher in the civil service. And so a lot of guys go into the service primarily to get veteran status and, you know, so they can get, get, you know, any number of jobs when they get out. And that's what I was going to do was, you know, go into service, you know, get your veteran status and become a firefighter. But, uh, when I did go to college, I, I kind of, I used to bum me out for a long time. Every time I saw a fire truck is that, you know, I used to ride him as a kid with my, uh, ride him as a kid with my dad and going on runs and you feel that adrenaline rush. But then, you know, I went to college. I kind of, I was undeclared. I became an English major, started running the school paper my sophomore year, just had no plans on it. It just kind of, things just sort of fell into place. And that put me on like the media track which obviously now years later, I realized I should have been, I probably would have been, been a shitty firefighter. So I don't get like wistful every time a fire truck drives by anymore. Like I used to, you know, I feel like I'm doing what I was supposed to do, but it was no like map. There was no road plan. I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I was running the school newspaper in the mid nineties and every advice is like, Oh, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. Well, unbeknownst to us, the internet was pretty new in its infancy somewhat. It was, it was basically like an undiagnosed malignant tumor for the print journalism industry that nobody found yet. 
And, you know, when you get out of college, it was like all of a sudden, every, all, the Globe, they stopped hiring, the Herald stopped hiring, you know, just people are getting laid off, newspapers getting bought and sold. And the industry was basically a shit industry to try to get into. So um, that's when Dave was looking for a blogger one day. And, you know, he had a Bruins blog and this kid, he called Glenn Murray a playmaker. Uh, back for the Bruins. Like Glenn Murray's a 40 goal scorer. He was not a playmaker. So the, the, the commenters revolted against him. And Dave's like, hey, I got to get someone else. And he literally, this is so long ago at Boston, he would post a, a, a blog. We need a new Bruins blog, ascendant submissions. That would be the blog. And then I emailed the submission and I uh, never heard back. And then uh, the next day, it was like my words were on, you know, on Boston Sports main blog, which to, that's as good. That's a byline in modern times. It was like the same thing. That's, as, that's what that's what's called a retweet now. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So, so I seen, you know, seeing your name, you know, what, what, what even if it's your pen name in, in print, so to speak on online was, was great the first time. So that was kind of like, all right, I kept my foot in the door with the, with the blogger. Like Dave, you know, I got a, eventually got a press pass from the Bruins and Dave, you know, let me keep, keep doing it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a career yet. It wasn't Dave said, I'm not hiring a Bruins guy. And to his credit, he still hasn't. Uh, and I was just trying to get a, a job on the writing side. And then, uh, little over five years ago, uh, well, five, oh, actually close to six years ago, Witt sent out that tweet saying, hey, I, I want to start a podcast. And he tagged Biz in it. And Biz is like, hey, I'm still playing for a couple more years. Check back. And uh, I, I replied, you know, half joking, sort of like, hey, you look at a partner, you know, how you serious, Witt? And we knew each other a little bit. We had kind of hung out a few times. We weren't like buddy-buddy. And then he slid into my DMs and asked, you know, are you serious? I said 100%. Uh, and I said, sorry, let's do it. And so that was right before Christmas and by the Super Bowl, we had our first episode out. I got a mixer. I learned how to, you know, do the garage band, whatever recording. I would actually send it to an intern we had who would then do whatever he did and then get it uploaded to Spotify. And, you know, Dave knew we were starting it, but, you know, you had to kind of prove your worth a little bit first. And, you know, we were doing it on my couch, like Wayne and Goff, like just, you know, having fun. We, I think we had some early momentum and Dave listened. He says, Hey, I like the show. Uh, we want to add you guys to the roster. Um, and then, you know, a little bit after that, the ad, the ad money starts coming in and, you know, we're doing fine. It's actually at the time I'm a school custodian. So it's a nice little supplement to my income because, you know, you need to work for insurance. So you got to I had to keep that gig for a while. And then we brought Biz on and, and Biz was like a shot of steroids to the show. Like he just had this sort of vision. We'd me and wet either, you know, didn't have in the business sense. Maybe we didn't have. And he's like, guys, this could be so much more. We're filling a vacuum here. And, you know, we, there really was a. a a vacuum for this type of show. We didn't know it when we started it. So then it got to the point I was able to quit my job and, you know, not to push the broom anymore and just do it full time. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a ride. So ironically, I was trying to get paid as a writer for all those years. And it took my big fat mouth to finally get me paid. <laughs> yeah. What was your favorite country you guys traveled to? And, and what were some experiences from that country? Wow. Um, Probably the, um, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite country, maybe Italy because of the food and the wine, because that was phenomenal. Um, every meal was great. Every bottle of wine was great. I mean, that was good. But I think one of the neatest experiences is when we went to um, Ekaterinburg, Russia. Um, that, Colin, is, it sits on the Ural Mountains where Asia and Europe come together. So there's a spot where you can go and straddle the line. So you're one foot in one continent and one foot in the other. And it's like zero degrees, you're freezing your tail off, you know, but, but it was really, um, it was interesting because 
we played the Russian national team like three times while we were there. It was so cold, snow and ice everywhere. And, and we were always taking shots with the other coaches or their administrators, you know, like after the game, oh, come on, come on, come on. And we'd have a start, we'd be taking these shots. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> How can everybody play the next day? How's oh everybody- my God. Well, it wasn't with the players. It was just like the coaches and the administrators of it. Um, I'll never forget that. And some of the coaches didn't drink, so I'd have to take them for them. You know, it was great. It was crazy. But the experiences like that, uh, I don't know, where you really get to um, spend time with the other You're culture. You're immersed in it. Yes. It, that was um, really special. Yeah. So when I played in the AAF, the small little league that shut down halfway through, I played for the Birmingham Iron. We had plane troubles and we spent the night in San Diego. We yeah. went out with the other team. It was one of the most fun I've ever had playing football ever. I was like, here we go. I like every bill. I'm like, I got it. I got it. Dr- drinks. <laughs> I don't care. This will never happen again. So we all, I'm, how, what do you guys want? I probably ordered, I don't know, $500 worth of drinks for everybody. I just yeah. didn't. And then we ended up splitting the bill up, but I was like, we got to get this rolling because this will never happen again. Got two hours of sleep. We watched film the next day and then we flew back to Birmingham and everyone just passed out on the plane. So that's awesome though. Those are the things you really, you know, you remember those great games, close games, but those relationships, man, there's nothing more special than the sports field relationship. Really? Were you competing? Yeah. That's, that's really well said. That's, that's really well said. I have a ton of them. I know you do too especially through your travels. We're going to get into the media stuff because I've been, I'm in, in that world. I'm getting yeah. out of it. Um, but take us to Sydney. You're competing. You're here. It's been three years. You built this team. Well, first off, how, how do you cut people? I mean, how do you make that roster? Because over years, I'm sure it changed. Yeah. You're maybe projecting this player is going to be, you know, late 30s by then. I don't know if they're going to be up for it. I'm sure there's huge names on your team. Yeah. Um, how do you build that roster? Yeah, it's interesting. Luckily, I mean, USA Basketball, that organization – um, is filled with committees. So you have a committee that chooses the team. So it doesn't fall directly on the shoulder uh, the shoulders of the coach. That's, That's nice. too much pressure um, because there are so many um, great players. But the committee, you know, listens to the coach, but doesn't it doesn't mean I get exactly what I want because they are a lot more objective than the coach can be. Um, but, you know, the team that I had in Sydney was a very experienced team. It was kind of like, it was one of those like kind of no-brainer teams because of their uh, longevity within the, the USA basketball system. So I was really fortunate in that regard. We had some young ones. Shamiqua Holesclaw was a, coming out of, high, out of college out of Tennessee. So she was a youngster on the team. Um, Kara Walters was a 6'7 um, player out of UConn that was a youngster. But they had particular skills that in case you needed them in a game, you had them. Kara Walters, six, seven. So the committee goes, man, we've got to have that kind of size just in case. So we're putting her on the team. Um, Shamiqua Holesclaw was just an all around six, three, could do anything, even though she was young, put her on the team, give her that experience for the next Olympiad possibly. So, but everybody else, no brainer, like no brainer. So I was fortunate in that regard. What was Sydney like? And then take us into, uh, you know, the, the competition and then taking over gold. Yeah, man. Look, Sydney was a beautiful Olympic spot. They should have it there again because that the Olympic village, we didn't stay in the Olympic village. We stayed in a hotel with the, with men's basketball and all of our families. They USA basketball just takes over the whole hotel. So, but to get to the venue, the Olympic venue, 
was so easy from everywhere around Sydney. The train system came straight there, so it was beautiful. Um, and all the venues were so, so nice. So at some point, man, they should have it again because it was real, really convenient. But the competition, we were the number one team in the world at the time. And well, we still are, we always are. And Australia was the number two team. They were phenomenal. Perfect. So here they are playing on their home court, right? 25,000 people in the gold medal game, all Australians, except for, you know, pockets of Americans that have come over, family and whatever. And Colin, it was the most fun game to coach because first of all, it's a gold medal game, but we were kicking their ass. <laughs> so it was like, you know, because anything can happen on their home court, it was that stressful because the crowd, yeah, one, everything, mistake, one mistake, the momentum's completely shifted. Yes, the momentum could swing and all of a sudden it didn't, it never swung. We were on it. We were like on it. And it was so fantastic. We ended up just beating them pretty good. So that was, that was a, that was a fun moment. So I can't help but thinking, I see these three boxes on the screen. Uh, I can't help thinking that we kind of have our own little Manning mega cast going on right now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So who are you, Justin, if you're going to call the Manning mega cast? Oh, I would be the sheriff without a doubt. Oh, wow. I I put the tiny helmet on. I'll call the plays. uh, And I I, I don't know. Comic relief, Colin. Maybe it could be Eli and make fun of my big forehead. Is Kevin like Russell Wilson? Yeah, my my third man in here. My Russell? That's a pretty good third man in. That's a very rich third man, by the way. Absolutely. Yeah. If but I'm on that kind of if I'm on that kind of contract, I'm I'm happy to be any role. Absolutely. <laughs> uh so Monday Night Football, the Manny Mega Cast was the story of the night. What did you think about it? And if you were creating your own Manny Mega Cast, what kind of like athlete mix would you put in there? Yeah. So I loved it, first of all. Big picture, I loved it. And I think that's what sports needs. I, I think that what's funny is I'm sure you guys have seen the college coaches film room when it's Alabama Clemson or, or literally you know, was just writing I literally was just writing that down because that to me is the best and you get right. to see some younger coaches in college football you get to see mm-hmm. different things like that's my favorite way to mm-hmm. watch the game but not for everyone sure. enjoys and, that well not, not only does not everybody enjoy it it's for us you know I mean and that, that's that's the thing I was talking I was talking to our media columnist last night like okay all three of us loved it last night because it's, not only is it Kyle Bowler anecdotes but it's Peyton saying Derek Carr's not setting his feet, all that stuff, right? Are, are, do my parents want to watch this stuff? I actually don't know the answer. Like, my parents have no idea what's going on. Like, they know who Peyton and Eli are, obviously, and Russell is, obviously. But I don't think that they're sitting there being like, oh, I, I got to hear this Kyle Fuller anecdote. And that's, gonna, that's why I'm intrigued to see the ratings over the long term is what happens that is there still a need for the traditional booth and stuff like that for, for more uh, casual viewers? There's a reason why, like, 60 million people watch the AFC title game or the NFC title game when it's a big game. And it's because of the casual viewers, not us, um, not a literal NFL player in, in one case. So I loved it. But I would also, one of the things, the reason it works is because it's hard for me to watch the, the college coaches film room during a game that I really care about. So like the national championship, I kind of just want to know who's going to win the game, what's happening, who's making the play. Cause obviously I, I don't really know the too deep of all of these guys in, unless it's the team I've, I've watched heavily. And so I, I think that for Monday Night Football, where the games are not as like neither of us are none of us are going to are going to our lives are not going to change based off of the, the Raiders Ravens outcome. Right. Um, so actually, that works in that regard. But if it's a Super Bowl or if it's a playoff game, maybe like a two minute anecdote doesn't 
doesn't really pay off, you know? So I loved it. I'm worried now that everyone, every network is just going to try this and it's just going to be like every single, any, any athlete who's ever told a joke is going to get their own uh, broadcast. Uh, so I think networks have to guard against that, but great question, Justin, about how I would build that. So if it's football, you know, I think that there's probably some room I'd love like, maybe like a Larry, if you're looking for only retired athletes right now, if I was, if I had to like sign people right now, maybe like a Larry Fitzgerald kind of thing, like maybe he could, he could do something like that. He has so many connections in the league. You bring people in. He's funny. He's free flowing. I've had him on our show. So Newsday before I, I really like him. Um, but I would look to other sports more like the one thing that makes so much sense. If we're talking about slow pace and just kind of, you're able to tell a 10, 10 minute story that goes nowhere. Look at golf, like maybe like a Phil Mickelson in five years, like, Who's not watching the U.S. Open Philcast, where he's just sitting in, in San Diego or Arizona or whatever, and he's got a beer and he's, he's just telling stories about these guys and how much money he won gambling from them. Um, so people talk to, I guess baseball has been doing this a couple of times. No shots to baseball, but it's funny that no one's noticed that baseball has been doing this for the past five years. Um, and so I think the possibilities are endless. NBA, hockey might be harder because of how fast paced it all is. There's not, not a lot of dead time, but this is... I think this is the future in the sense that Peyton and Eli together chopping it up is the future. I don't necessarily, I think this was, I think you have to have a Peyton or Eli for this to work. Um, but this is going to work in the long term. And it looks like they, they want to do it. The fact they're not in the same room is fine because they have chemistry um, and they're brothers. They've been, they've been doing this for, for 40 years now. They're good on the chemistry part of it. Um, so I, I just, I adored the whole thing. I think there's a lot of difficulties in unionizing across the board among college athletes. You have over 400,000 college athletes. And while many of those athletes do transition quickly, either to the pros or to some sort of other professional life, the same is true in a variety of sports. I mean, NFL stands for not for long. So a lot of players are lucky if they make it past three, four years in the NFL. And so it is quite transitory, similar to college sports. But with the NFL, you have 53-man rosters. And so we're only talking about a, just above 1,000 players to unionize. Um, there are varying interests, as you saw yourself in the last round, of deciding whether or not to ratify a new collective bargaining agreement. Imagine the controversies between 400,000 plus college athletes and the diverging interests, not only among bigger schools and smaller schools, but between the sports and between the sexes, females and males. And it just would be so complicated to just manage. Um, and then you get into the whole issue, going back to Northwestern football players who for a time successfully navigated this process and were temporarily allowed to go through this unionization process, the regional board of the National Labor Relations Board, they said that was okay. And that these are really employees who deserve to be able to negotiate the terms of their employment, the time commitment, their sat really salaries, um, so on and so forth. But that got appealed to the full board in Washington, DC which punted on the issue and pointed out that there are issues even by and between the private schools and the public schools where there may be constraints on public schools and, the, and these athletes at public schools unionizing. So I think it's going to be rather difficult to get to that point in time 
What I think is much more realistic is maybe a trade association or an organization at least that allows for broad-based group licensing so we can see a return of that college football video game that we once had by EA Sports and allow the athletes to benefit by way of receiving a royalty like you receive as an NFL player. I think that is a possibility and it doesn't necessarily require true unionization in order to get that. That's a great point. A lot of great points there. Let's paint a picture of name, image, and likeness and what has happened in college athletics for my listeners. So the simple question, when did this conversation start? The conversation started at least a decade ago. You can think back to Ed O'Bannon, who played at UCLA and played in the NBA. He fought a battle in court. But even before that, myself included, uh, back then I was writing for Forbes, covering sports business. And I won't take full credit. There are many other people who looked at this situation and have an appreciation for rights of publicity. You know, we use the abbreviation NIL. Obviously, that stands for name, image, and likeness. But these are elements that make up an individual's right of publicity. And an individual's right of publicity actually is derived from an individual's right of privacy. These are ideas and protections that were put in place decades ago, um, but not at the infancy of this country. So the, the concept being that all of us should have this right to not only benefit from things that identify us as individuals, but also being able to prevent others from using the things that identify us in a commercial manner. Because really, we should not only be able to benefit from that ourselves, but prevent others from benefiting off of it, or at least be compensated fairly for that. And so this theory, these rights have existed for literally everybody in the United States, just not for college athletes. And now we're even looking at high school athletes who don't necessarily have these rights either based on either the laws in the states or the, high, the, the relevant high school athletic association bylaws. So, but this concept where, or I'm sorry, this fight that was taken up in the legislatures really started at the end of 2019. And it was California, the state of California passed a bill signed by Governor Newsom with a lot of fanfare that officially for the first time became the first state to challenge the NCAA's bylaws that restricted these rights. But it wasn't supposed to go effective until 2023. And then in September of 2019, I was asked by Representative Chip Lamarca in the state of Florida and his legislative aide whether I'd be interested in taking up a battle in our state of Florida. And to look at California's law, see how we could make it better, see if there were any, any elements that we didn't quite understand. And one of those elements was this 2023 effective date. Why wait four full years to provide rights to athletes that they deserved, if they truly deserved it? And we determined they deserved it, and we shouldn't wait. Initially, we wanted to give these athletes in the state of Florida rights as of July 1, 2020. We received pushback. It changed to July 1, 2021, and in June, 2020, when Governor Ron DeSantis signed the legislation into law, we became the first state with a July 1, 2021 effective date. Many other states would follow. And on June 30th, 2021, the NCA finally caved in and said, we're done with this. Everyone gets rights. 
very special locker room, man. Like, you know, people like to have this whole discussion about is New England fun? Is it this, that, and third? Like, I think that whole conversation is overblown. Like, I'm not saying that the things that people say are not always true, but what I'm saying is that, like, you could have this conversation about so many places and what sucks about a place or what's great about a place or some idiosyncrasy that a coach has or a program has like that just changes place to place. It just so happens they're under a microscope. And I love bill man. Like I didn't see, you know, I don't even want to say see eye to eye, like, you know, schematically it wasn't for me, but I didn't sign up to be a four, three DN and do what I did my whole career. I signed up to try to win a ring. So when you opt in, the nice thing is that Bill's not going to lie to you. Like he told me, I don't know what we're going to do with you, but I know I, you're a good football player and I want you to help us win a championship. And I think you can really help us. That was it. And that's all I needed to hear. So, Hey, if I end up in a three, a lot, if I end up having to drop more than I want to, like, it might make me look like I've lost a step. It might make some if I got to rush on the right, like, all that stuff. Yes. Is it hard when you're trying to explain to idiots that don't understand football, that you're doing something different and you're not going to be a double digit guy anymore, but it was so rewarding. And I learned so much about the game. He's the guy that can go around to any position group and coach it better than the position coach, you know, and you know, this, like there's so few coaches like that. I've only had one. Um, so Bill's amazing. Tom's an awesome guy, um, treats everybody in the facility with respect. Um, and he really does have that killer instinct in him without being an asshole to everybody that he comes across, which is a hard thing to have that duality. It's almost like a serial killer thing. And it's very far, hard to find for offensive players. I feel like when you see defensive guys, it's like, yeah, we know he's an ass, but like, hey, man, he's just a dog. It's who he is all the time. But offensive yeah. players, it's a different mindset. You know, you've got, you know, everybody like, just a different, I don't know. I try to explain to people, but like Tom, just like smiling and he's just picking you apart. And that's just an offensive player mindset, I feel like. But he, he's a dog all the time, too. No, you're right. He he pulls it off. And you're right. Like on defense, it's we, especially a D line room, like the yeah. D line we had in Philly or in St. Louis and Philly, but more so St. Louis was just an absolute daycare center. <laughs> and like, you know, like just dudes climbing on the walls and like just, you know, just. Was there your Quinn? Uh, Robert Quinn, William Hayes, Aaron Donald, myself, Kendall Langford. Yeah. Like, like Eugene Sims, like we were two, three deep, Nick Fairley. And we were fucking crazy. Auburn. And all we did was hang out with each other off the field. And that's, that's D linemen, like D linemen are nuts. And, you know, linebackers are crazy too, but they have to coordinate DBs or dogs at their best. Um, if they tackle. Yeah, come up yeah. in the flat and actually feel like putting their nose in there. But offensive players, like offensive linemen are cerebral. Yep. You know, like tight ends are smart guys that are tough too. And they like to have fun. Like tight ends are cool, right? Like running backs. Gotta be. Yeah, they gotta be, right? Yeah, Happy yeah. go lucky. Quarterbacks have to be leaders. Wide receivers are kind of assholes sometimes, in my opinion. Some, um, yes. Yeah, but Tom pulls that off really well. Like, how do you infuse that killer instinct into your offense? It really helps when you have a quarterback that has that killer instinct. And, like, yeah, you don't have to have it, but that really helps when the guy on top is setting that asshole bar and they can still be geniuses up there, but they yeah. really had an edge to them. And a good dude, like you said, like the asshole bar, which I love, is set, but I'm going to be a great guy. We're going to do things the right way, and then we're going to let it rip on the field. I mean, that's why he's the greatest. There's very few that can do that. 
Um, and Tom could get ripped too. Tom was fair game to get ripped. Bill would sit there and rip Tom in the big, yeah. you know, Jules, Tom, whoever. So, which was genius. You know, I think he had like a discussion with those guys who were like the leaders on the team. And they, he said like, I'm going to yell at you. Um, that didn't make it fake when he yelled at him, but I think they knew that, Hey, like I got to come for you because then I don't have to come for, you know, Gino Grissom or whoever the, the, the third end is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Two, two, two questions for me. And then we'll wrap things up first. Most importantly, best blocking tight end you faced. Man, dude, oh, that's so funny. For me, it was always guys that had like long arms. Well, long arms for sure. Like somebody like a Brandon Pettigrew, who a lot of people might not think was that challenging of a blocker, but like his length was like something that like bothered me a little bit. But then I kind of came in a league when there was this big transition from like the true blockers to to the guys that like it was a bonus if you could block. And like so every week in the NFC West, you know, Vernon Davis, when he was young, he was blocking his ass off. I mean, so strong. So strong. And so, you know, you have Vernon Davis at tight end. You'd have IU Potty. You'd have, uh, you know, Joe Staley. You'd have uh, Goodwin, I think, Alex Boone, and then the right tackle, who we have an age-old rivalry. I'm not going to name his, him by name. Um, but, like, that was just an entire outfit. They had a fullback and everything. They had multiple fullbacks. Like, and that was just the way the league was. And so tight ends had to block. Delaney, Delaney Walker could block. That team was loaded. They were loaded. You dude. look back, you don't even realize it. Like Delaney oh. Walker's an all pro. He's like the fourth tight end. What? Anquan Bolden, Dog. Who, who could block as good as like most tight ends now. Like, you know, he he uh he was a wide receiver. And so he would come down and like reduce and block an end, like. The, the league was different, and there was a guy in in, in uh, San Diego at the time. Do you remember that big-ass um, tight end that they had? He was like um, – I'm going to look him up. All I know is Gates from that team. Okay. I'm trying to think of your era, like Mercedes Lewis. Mar- Mercedes Lewis, again, long, really good hands. So, like, I think the biggest thing about tight ends that makes it challenging is if guys are really accurate with their hands and they don't let go. Because one guy, one thing that guys aren't that good at is shucking blockers. And so, like, you could be 245 blocking a 275-pound end. If you have hands and you're sticky, he's going to disregard you and, like, try to make the play in the C. And then what happens? You wash for the bounce out. And, like, because most guys relax. And I think about, you know, uh, the guy Spath um, yeah. in Pittsburgh who I would never tell him this while he played. Like, I hated playing him because he held so well. You just pull like, guys into you, like, literally. for That's like my number. I just pull. Yes. Hard. And, and literally, if you have the vice grips, yeah, and you pull and you don't relax and you, you, you're willing to go to the wall to finish blocks, like, you can block DNs. And I know it's like sacrilege because in a D-line room, you're supposed to say, you never let a tight end block you. That's like, who he is. Depends who the tight end is. Not all are created equal anymore. George Back Kittle. in the day. Yeah, Kittle would be a guy that I think he understands it great. You watched that Minnesota playoff game two years ago, I believe it was. It's that um, wide zone stuff, man. It's, it's I don't know why every team doesn't run it. Yeah, I don't know why either. And then if you're in a if you play a team that's in an over and like Mike Zimmer really wants to stick those guys in a six technique, like that's one of the hardest techniques in football being head up with a tight end because okay, my gap is C to D, 
but that gap is moving 100 miles an hour side to side. And so we're really afraid of the cutback. We're really afraid of just getting walled. There's fullbacks everywhere, trap yeah. blocks everywhere. Play yeah. action is ridiculous. It- Who is Adam Schefter? Where are you from? I know you went to Northwestern in Michigan. And just tell us a little about what's going on in your life right now. Well, it's not a temple education, but it's not bad, Colin, right? That's the way it kind of goes. Um, you know, I, honestly, all I am, I'm just a reporter who's living a life, married, two kids, five dogs. Um, honestly, trying to just get by a day-to-day, deal with all the frustrations of life, like everybody else, all the things that come, all the things that come your way. Um you know, I, I, I am fortunate that I love my job. Uh, it allows me to do something that I enjoy doing. Um, so today, you know, when there's all sorts of things going wrong in the house and uh, uh, some of the bushes are dying and one of the dogs has to go to the vet for a broken shoulder and my wife's doing some of that, I get to come on TV and go and get up in NFL Live and talk about Aaron Rodgers or whatever it may be. So um, I'm blessed in that regard, but I'm not any different than anybody else dealing with everyday life, right? I went to the University of Michigan. I went out for fraternity my freshman year, 1985, way back when. Um, there were about 50 guys going for about 10 spots. Didn't get offered one. I was disappointed. So I went down to the football office to see if they needed somebody to pick up jock straps and hand out water bottles, and they didn't need anybody. So I went to the basketball office to see if they needed somebody to do that, and they didn't need anybody. And when the fraternity didn't want me or need me, and the football office didn't want me or need me, and the basketball office didn't want or need me, I'm like, well, what can I do? I got to do something here. Like, what, what am I going to do? I said, let me go try the student newspaper. And it was literally a whim. It was nothing that was premeditated. I didn't go to Michigan to major in journalism. I didn't go there thinking, boy, I'm going to go right for the school newspaper. It was only because I had all that rejection in front of me that left me despondent that I went down to the student newspaper, volunteered there, began writing. And one thing led to another. And here I am on the Colin Thompson podcast. When I was in Denver, covering the Broncos for the period of time that you're, you're saying every summer I would go to training camp with them in Greeley, Colorado, North University of Northern Colorado. And I lived in the same dorm room, had the same phone number, 970-351-4192. Still remember the phone number of my dorm room because there weren't cell phones back in those days. And uh, I used to cover Ed McCaffrey, the Broncos Pro Bowl wide receiver. And Ed's family would come visit him all the time. Ed and his four boys, his wife, Lisa, and there was little Christian McCaffrey on the sideline running around with his brothers Dylan and Luke and uh, Max and, and, and his oldest brother, Max. So there are the McCaffrey boys, Max and Christian and Luke and Dylan, and they're all there. And so I, I remember all these little, I remember all these McCaffreys as little, little boys running around the training camp fields in the University of Northern Colorado. That tells you how long I've been doing it. Yeah, and as it was a, it was a lot. And it's actually, you know, 10 years later, it's, it's a lot to process because yeah. getting to the summit of Everest is one thing, right? Like who does that? You know, there's, there's a few people that have, but you know, mass majority of people will never even consider it. They may go watch the movie. Um, but to do it on my own, you know, according to the Himalayan database, I'm like one of two people to ever have had the summit to myself on a given day. So clearly didn't intend to do that, but life happens. Yeah. Life happens. So you're up there. You have some time to yourself, the process, think things through, be where your feet are and take it all in. Yeah, you try, but with a third of the air, it's things are moving fast. And I knew I had to get down. 
So I took some selfies, highest selfie in the world, took some, you know, video till my camera froze and then made a radio call down, let everyone know I made it. And, and that's the point where I actually had a friend who was one camp below. He was heading up to high camp, making his summit attempt. He and his uh, um, Sherpa, Lakpa. And that's the first that anyone knew that I was alone. And the radio call was pretty simple because he was like, you know, be careful you and Pasong on your way down. And I said, well, that's cool, but I'm alone. He's like, what happened to Pasong? Like he's, he went down, he's waiting for me. He's like, man, okay, well, be careful. And he talked to Lakba after that. We had been climbing for the last month together. And he's like, how long will it take Brian to get down? He's like, Brian, probably two to three hours. And nobody would hear from me for seven. Wow. So no one hears from you seven. Why? Well, that's where the story yep. turns. So the road, I, road. It's crazy. Yeah. So I've, you know, you only have so much time up there, maybe an hour to really just take it in and, you know, it's see the curvature of the world and, and just being, you know, there's no person higher at that moment. It's, it's, it, I don't know, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. It's crazy stuff. Um, but I started heading down and within, you know, five, 10 feet, everything just went completely white. And I, I just remember just dropping down, grabbing the rope that I was connected to and just assessing the situation. It's like, I realized I went snow blind. Yeah. So I'm completely blind, completely alone. Nobody's coming to get me. And I just remember standing up and moving like I have to get down. So I was at that point, just really forced to use my senses, but I was really trying to use my eyes. I'm not usually blind. Um, you ever been snow blind? No, I'm not. Yeah. I don't recommend it. It's usually it takes about 24 hours to return. I wouldn't regain my eyesight for about a month and a half. Wow. So you were blind for a month and a half. So yeah. you went down the whole mountain. I mean, we, that's, that's the moral to the story. And I, I want to walk us through. So you're blind for the month and a half. You, you went down the mountain, spoiler alert. You're sitting here today. We're talking, but okay. I don't even know where to start. The trials and tribulations are through the roof, right? But what, what are your, what's the self-talk going between the ears there? Because there's gotta be a lot of it, right? Family, kids, you just made it. You just had a massive achievement that not even 1% of the 1% of the 1% have done even less percentage of that. And now you're blind. After you've had the greatest achievement of your life, what's going through your head? Obviously there's some panic, but, but it has to be under control. Cause you know, based off oxygen, you got to get back down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. So um, I'm actually writing a second book right now and it's about this moment right here. Why didn't I panic? Panic kills. So what I did in the military as an aviation rescue swimmer, we were trained to be calm in the chaos under every circumstance. And a lot of that came back. So I didn't panic. I got up and I started moving. And through faith and focus, I just continually moved. I just kept my faith. I knew there was a high percentage that I wasn't going to make it. But I never once thought about that. I just, I kept moving. And I just... Ironically, I couldn't focus because I couldn't see anything, but I was just trying to focus on taking that next step, feeling the rope, coming in and out of the anchor points, getting into the right rope. So the, the ropes up there are left for years. If you snap into the wrong rope, it's brittle. 
you break, you die, you, you know, you fall for two miles. So it's really just a really timely process, you know, having to get water, um, went down, well, first was that two mile traverse, you know, the Cornus traverse in the high winds, 50 mile an hour gusts, I could hear them now coming up and over the ridge and I would hunker down, let it go over me and I'd get up, take another step. And this whole time, I just, I felt this presence around me. It's like, if you close your eyes, you know, I'm in the room with you. It's just this presence that I didn't overthink, think too much about. It just, it was always there the entire walk down. And I just, I just kept moving. I got to um, Hillary step and I had to reverse my gear and kind of rappel down this 40 foot rock face. And I remember just kind of pendulum slipped out, slammed against a rock and just slid down. But, you know, did a self-assessment. Like I was, I wasn't broken as far as I could tell. And just got up, started moving again, had to climb up the South summit because he actually dipped down. And on the top of that, just slipped out, just took a major fall. And I remember that was probably the scariest, well, one of two scariest moments. I mean, go on your roof, close your eyes and jump off. It's kind of that helplessness until the rope that I was attached to shock loaded. So didn't pull the anchor out. I'm upside down. Mask is ripped from my face, oxygen bottles coming out. And I remember just my heart just ripping out of my chest and just, I had to like stop and just control my breathing, just calm down because that alone will kill you. You know, you get into those panic modes and then up there, you're in the death zone. You just close your eyes and you peacefully fall asleep. So righted myself, you know, got down to where Pasong had turned around and I almost walked right past the oxygen bottle that he had left. So a spare bottle. And it was just kind of this bright orange thing glowing. So with snow blindness, it's not black. Everything is bright white. Like if you put a light bulb in front of your face and put your finger in front of it, you'd know something moved, but there's no way you can actually see it. And it's just very, very painful, like scratching in your eyelids. But saw this bright orange thing. And I remember laying down next to it, pulling my regulator off, trying to make that thing work. And it just, it wouldn't work for whatever reason. So I put my old oxygen back on. I knew it was going to be out soon. And I, for whatever reason, I don't know, I grabbed the other oxygen bottle and put it in my pack. It's like, I didn't want to litter or something. I have no clue. <laughs> Focused on getting down, got to the balcony where Pasong was supposed to be and he wasn't there. Um, but I remember being happy. I made it like halfway down. The rest was like 20 pitches, maybe like a mile of repelling. Um, but it would lead straight into high camp and got a little snack, got some water, started heading down and maybe 20 feet into it, my mass just collapses around my face and I ran out of oxygen. And I remember at that moment, I'd been climbing for over 30 hours since the day prior to this point, you know, completely blind, just wrecked. And I just remember run out of oxygen, which is usually pretty instant death. I just dropped to my knees and prayed. And it's very simple. Just, God, I can't do this on my own. Please help. And immediately just felt this energy come over me and just had this life in me. And first thing I did is I fumbled around, tried that extra oxygen bottle and got a positive flow. And I remember taking like five deep breaths and just, it was like fire. Like I'd never felt this, like air was like fire burning through my veins. And I, I had life. And again, I just put all my gear back on, reversed it and just started 
slow motion, but rappelling down, just getting going in the right direction and eventually made it to the last quarter mile, this ice bulge and out of nowhere, Pasong just hugs me. He's like, Brian, you alive. Never saw him coming. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I leave you. And I'm like, don't worry about it, dude. Like, we're good.